As reported on the Justice Gap, England and Wales has the highest imprisonment rate in Western Europe with more than 140,000 admissions last year. Our guest today, Paula Harriet, spent four years in jail for supplying drugs. A mother of five, she has shared in the media that she knew that her children were suffering intensely and having to cope with not having a mum. Somewhat shockingly, 17,000 children in the UK see their mother, who in the majority of cases is the primary carer, go to prison each year, often for non-violent crimes, with 62% serving a sentence of six months or less. Paula has spoken out in favour of prison changes, which would see women prisoners get to spend more time with their children and serve sentences closer to home. In 2017, she was elected to be part of the senior management team at the Prison Reform Trust, which is a pressure group in the UK developing work around prison reform. I'm Carla Morales-Lee. In this interview, I'll be asking Paula why we're so obsessed with locking people up and what about the system needs to change specifically to better support women and their families. Welcome, Paula. Hello, Carla. Firstly, I'm so inspired by your story and I'm really looking forward to hearing and understanding more about what's going on within the prison system from someone who's got real lived experience. Yeah. To start with, I'd like to get really personal, actually, and I really appreciate you saying that you're okay to do this um, because it's not an easy thing to talk about, I'm sure, even though it was um, quite a few years ago now. Yeah. What were the circumstances that that led you to going into prison and what was the experience like when you got in? I was arrested in 2002, went to prison in 2004 and got an eight-year prison sentence for supplying cocaine. That's the, the, the top line of the circumstances, but there's so much more behind that story. What we read in the papers isn't the true story of what was going on. The true story of going, that was going on at that time was that I was, had been a drug user for over 20 years and struggling in, with that drug use over 20 years in a relationship with somebody else who used drugs. And in the midst of that, trying to cope with five children and to protect them from the impact of that drug use. I lived a life that was really much about, so much about schism, so much about one face for the public and one behind the scenes about what was really going on. One where you're trying to present yourself to the school as a a responsible mother at the same time, knowing that so much was going on, so much volatility was going on behind the scenes, so much pain, so much stress. And uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a really difficult time in my life just prior to being arrested. My husband was using crack. Um, I was snorting cocaine. I thought people came to your house for tea and a line of Coke. I didn't know they came to your house for tea and biscuits. And then... Um, it feels bizarre to say it like that now because other people listening might go, oh, God, that's so irresponsible, that's so dreadful. I think that unless you're living it, you don't understand. You don't understand how you try to navigate addiction. Mm. Um, and, you know, I was aware it was getting out of hand. And then obviously you start to sell drugs to supply your own habit. And in a way, this is the actual truth. The day that I got arrested, the day the police came to the house, there was a sense deep down of relief. Do you know, that was the question that I was going to ask you. And then I just thought, is that just too obvious? No, 
it felt it felt like the end yeah and it was the end so obviously you resist you don't want to go to prison you know that wasn't that wasn't what I wanted but I did want an exit from that that life I did want an exit from that life I couldn't cope anymore it was becoming impossible to juggle all those balls and protect my children from the impact and I knew that I was losing control of it so there was a like a sense of relief that that happened to me and I wanted it to stop unfortunately what I didn't know was that a a sentence of eight years in prison Mm. um, serving four years in prison thank god and and getting parole at four years Mm. and then four years on license what I didn't know Mm. was that what that impact would have on me and have on my kids I mean also let's you know let's not diminish the drug use and as you say the contributing factors to that but five children wow (laughs) I mean I've got two children and you know uh, to a far lesser extent there's plenty of nights that I reach for the glass of wine too much and I think you know from a mother's lived experience I can imagine just how intense that is yeah, it was really intense. It was a, it was a bad, it was a having that many kids. It's a lot to carry, isn't mm-hmm. it? Like making sure that you're trying. And I, and I, I love my children. I had a drug addiction, mm-hmm. um, and I didn't really acknowledge that that's what it was mm-hmm. for a very long time. I remember one time one of my friends saying to me, "You are a drug addict, you know, Paula." I said, "No, I'm not." Mm-hmm. And he said, "No, you're just a rich drug addict, and you don't understand." Wow. I mean, you know. <laughs> That's what he said. You're just a rich drug addict. So you never, you don't run out of money to feed the habit. Yeah. So you don't acknowledge it. I remember that. So it must have spoke to my heart, mustn't it? Those truths do though, right? I mean, going back to the point about being at the school gate as well, you know, there's so many times when I just, because of what's in the news, you know, around child poverty and there's so many times when I walk past parents and it just crosses my mind, like how many stories are kind of hidden as you get to the school gate and sometimes you know I have seen a woman who is clearly high or you know a woman whose face is bashed in Mm. I remember one woman at the school gate saying oh what's happened to you and she's clearly knowing what's happened but just trying to find a way to have that conversation so yeah there's a lot going on in society that that obviously is behind closed doors that's obviously an issue in itself I didn't know who to reach out to yeah I was deeply ashamed of what was going on. I knew I knew I couldn't reach out to my parents. I, I, I felt like I would be seriously judged and I couldn't cope with that on top of what I was going through. So I was just desperately trying to hide it all, mm. like hide it all and pretend on the surface that everything was fine. Mm. And there comes a point in any woman's life, I think, who's in those situations, whether that's addiction, mental health anxiety depression postnatal depression you know domestic violence and abuse I think there comes a point when you just can't hide it anymore Mm. and that's when you you do need to ask for help um and I've I've learned that asking for help isn't necessarily weakness it's asking for help is acknowledgement that we live as a collective and sometimes it takes a community to support you (laughs) you know like for the for the for the betterment of that community Mm. so you're charged you your sentence what happens then I was in shock I I, I was arrested and then on bail for nearly two years um, while they constructed the case and I think in my head I was I was just so hoping that I wouldn't go to prison I was so hoping that somehow there would be a miracle and it wouldn't happen to me. I think I pushed it 
to the back of my mind and try to delude myself that it wouldn't happen. So that was also an, reflecting back on that. It's an interesting way about how we can construct delusions around us that prevent us from action. But I, yeah, just the total shock when the jury said guilty. And I remember my two eldest children were in the courtroom with me. They were at that time 17 and 16 and looking at their faces and time actually slowed down. Like it, it slowed down. You know, when people talk about time slowing down, it was an eternity. In that moment when the woman stood up in the purple dress and said, guilty, time stopped and all the fear that I felt about losing my children and not seeing them, that just took me into a vortex of despair in that moment. And at the same time, I looked across to them and wanted to reach out to support them because I saw the tears in their eyes and the fear. And I thought, oh, my God, like, how how mm. is this going to happen? How are we going to endure this? How have I done this to them? How And how are they going to be? Um, so those were the sort of key emotions that I had was really about oh my god look what I've done to the people that I love the dearest mm. and oh my god like how am I gonna make sure they get through this and then talk to me about what life in prison was like because it's it's really an enigma to anyone that's not been in prison you know you have this kind of really publicized images in movies of what it's like and I'm sure that it's nothing like that so how was it for you horrible <laughs> That's the main thing. I mean, and there's probably there's people who might be listening to this who go, yeah, well, it's meant to be. It's meant to be a punishment. It's meant to be horrible. Um, I don't think they know how horrible it is. Mm. Me, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. I don't understand the total purpose of it. And I think that's also really difficult because if you're in a situation and you don't have acceptance about the legitimacy of it, I think that's also really difficult to to comprehend and some of these reflections are things that I take forward in my work now you know so I've, I've used it as a as a learning um, space but prison isn't like orange is the new black it isn't like prison cell block h it's tough it's brutal it's depersonalizing you know you go to prison you get the first thing is you get strip search they they ask you to take your rings off your earrings off. If you're wearing a wig, they ask you to take your wig off. Wow. You get given prison clothes, you know, grey tracksuits that somebody else has worn, you know, um, and you're strip searched. And I remember how that felt, you know, like going behind the curtain and these two women in uniform and I'm taking off my bra and I'm taking off my knickers and I'm feeling so exposed and vulnerable. Mm. And then you're given a number. So from then on in, you're called by your prison number and your surname. So Paula, Paula disappears. And um, that's frightening. Mm. And it's designed that way, right? By clever psychologists. It's frightening though, isn't it? Because I'm already in turmoil internally. And then... I didn't feel safe. Mm. Um, I, that environment with that level of institutional like process that is devoid of humanity, that that was such a 
such a scary space, such a vulnerable space. And I really understand why so many women, um, you know, people do commit suicide, people self-harm in those early weeks of imprisonment because you're just stripped of everything. And and I suppose if you deep down don't have the desire to get through it, you don't have anything to aim at, don't have anything to go back to, mm. yeah, I think you're just lost, lost. I kind of want to now fast forward a bit to where you are today. Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing that. That was yeah. That was a really personal account. I appreciate it. What does it take to be a warrior woman who has been in prison, who is now trying to reform the prison system? You know, do you feel comfortable with what is, from what I can see and read, an outward perception of you as a really pioneering leader in this space? I think um, that's that's true. I, w- I went through that experience for four years and obviously adjusted and and learned about myself in that space. I talk about it as a, an academy, you know, a leadership academy. If you can survive the brutality of the prison system, if you can find yourself and build yourself and survive that, then you can survive most things. Mm. So as a pioneer... In this space, I definitely use that experience and I recognize the injustices that occur within the system. I saw the lack of compassion and humanity that is dished out to people in that system. I saw the way that people with power can treat people with less power. And I think as a woman, a white woman with power and privilege before and capital, social capital before I went into prison, you know, when you're not necessarily always aware of that um, when you're living in society, but when you're on the other side, when you're exiled from society by imprisonment, when you're given numbers, not names, you see how power manifests and how people utilize power in a malevolent way, not a benevolent way, how it isn't generous, how it, but it can be cruel. Mm. And I think that having absorbed so much of you know like living in those spaces for four years being subject to that system for eight years I really understand truly now yeah a what it takes to survive that but what the core issues are within that and that I came out of prison determined that that was not going to be for nothing and I came to understand that it's got a purpose in my life you know a sole purpose and I activated, I, we talk about activation of lived experience for social purpose. How can you elevate yourself through an experience to know that it is a unique insight that is lost in the general discussion? And I was determined that I would prove to people that um, you could go through that and you could rise. And I would do that for the women that I left behind in the system, but also for everybody in our community who needs to understand better about how people end up in prison, what it takes to support and heal them, who's responsible for that, and and um, try and shift the emphasis away from individual culpability to more of a community responsibility and a restoration of healing and justice. Wow, I mean... <sighs> The point about power being used for cruelty is so interesting. Of course, there are two, you know, there is different ways that you can use power and that's clearly an example of one way. But when you said about being 
an example to prisoners that actually you can rise. You reminded me of actually the trailer for this podcast where I said, there are so many stories out there about what women can't do. And I think the thing that I'm, as I'm speaking to you and I'm hearing and, and actually to all the guests so far is those stories are true but they're not the whole story. And actually, if we don't get people like you out there saying, you know what, it's not a sentence that says you are now out of society and you will reoffend because it must be, they must, you know, all prisoners must hear that figure, the percentage of people, mm-hmm. isn't like 48% of people are likely yep. to reoffend and mm-hmm. whatever percentage of children from people who've been in prison are likely to go into the criminal justice figure. And those figures can be so defining, like a cape that you're putting on. And actually, I really believe that what is pioneering about warriors like you is the work you're doing, but just sharing your lived experience and just being an example of a different path is enough. Like even before yeah. you join the prison reform, like the confidence and the personal breakthroughs that you had to go through and the shame I'm sure you carry from that journey to say, yes, all those things are true about me. I did abuse drugs. You know, I did go into the prison system, but actually that's not the whole story about me. Absolutely. It was a chapter in my story. Yeah. And I think that's what we always have to recognise about people who've been to prison. Mm. These are chapters in the story of their life. Mm. They don't need to be defining. Yeah, I'm I'm nearly 60. I went to prison for four years. That means there's 56, nearly 56 years yeah. when I wasn't in prison. Yeah. We're not defined by a singular experience, are we? Mm, and this is something that's so all of the, the other warriors that I've spoken to, they all agree. And, and it's just such a strong story that's coming out from these podcasts is that society would have us be in boxes. Absolutely. It's so much easier to call you a prisoner than it is to talk about you as a prisoner that's now working in the prison reform trust. Definitely. And people always want to hone in on that. But I don't mind, you know, I don't mind because in a way, you know, I'm combating stigma Mm. and educating people in so doing, right? So I will be the warrior that does that. Yeah, I will be the warrior that says, yes, I did. And, and, and here I am now, here I stand now in my space to defend my position. Mm. Right. And I've done the time, right? So that's it. And to create a sort of a new narrative about prison and prison reform. But what going back, Carla, to a point you made earlier about vulnerability and the narratives of vulnerability and, and negativity about women, I think we also have to refute those labels because although sometimes it can be convenient to play into labels of vulnerability, it's also sort of mental oppression. Mm. I take heart from Bob Marley. He says, number ourselves can free our minds. Yeah. And liberation of the mind from these labels of vulnerability is also the way we step through the portal to leadership and authenticity. Mm. So there is something about the power of that. Clearly, you are very aware now of how the prison system needs to reform. Like, what are those Mm -hmm. top three points that you're advocating for that you're championing right now? I think we should reserve prison for the most serious of crimes. Yeah. If the purpose of imprisonment is to keep communities safe, we would spend our money better on sending people who are using drugs to rehabilitation, drug rehabilitation centres. We would spend our taxpayers' money better with people who have mental health issues by investing in mental health support in the community and in, in hospitals. And we should not send women 
for non-violent crimes with families mm. to prison. If people believe they need support, we should send them to women's centres where they can get ongoing support for the complexity of issues that they are living through. So I think that th those are sort of like three top things I would do. Mm. You know, there's, there's, there's 20 things I'd do, 40 things mm. I'd do, but primarily I'd rebuild a system that's based on restoration and not punishment. I'd build a system that's about compassion for people who breach civil codes. I'd build a system where the community accepts responsibility for when things fail. Because if you look into the backstories of the majority of people who end up in prison, I, I used to cry. I used to think, how have you survived childhood abuse? How have you survived domestic violence? How have you survived being in the care system? You know, post-traumatic stress disorder from veterans that goes untreated, that ends up in violent outbursts. There's always a story behind the person. And I think that we should spend a little bit more time listening to those stories and accepting where systems have failed and where the community could have rallied around and helped. You know, before I went to prison, there were nine services that were satellite in my life. So, so I wasn't known. There was a, some point before I was arrested where it was known that I was in trouble. But I couldn't engage with them and they couldn't engage with me. But what, what would it have taken for them to engage with me? What did they need to do more? It, it, it's so easy just to write me off and say, well, I wouldn't engage with them. But maybe what they were offering wasn't what I needed. Um, I remember one time a social worker came to the house and there'd been a fight in the house between me and um, the kid's dad and and the glass was all over the floor. The police called the social worker and, and she came. And my primary consideration at that time was I just need to get the house tidy so that the kids are coming home from school and they don't see the glass and that we can pretend it hasn't, they don't need to be impacted. And she said, well, what can I do? I've come to help. I've come to help. What do you need? And I said, I need you to help me tidy up. Really, could you just do half an hour <laughs> like helping me move this glass? And, and she said, oh, no, that's not in my job description. I can't do that. So like, it was like she didn't hear what I needed at that time. And, I, and if she had helped me clean up, maybe we would have created a bond and I would have felt more trust to be able to say, do you know what? I'm in trouble here. I'm in trouble. What my experience has been through running the Warrior Women Network is that we don't actively listen to each other anymore. We all come with a personal agenda and we listen to somebody and we kind of interject with our own experiences or the way that we think we can solve it, like in that social worker example. But if you actually mm -hmm. ask somebody, what do you need? And you commit to not interrupting them, to treating interruption as a form of violence even, and you listen to what they say and you deliver on what they need, I think it could be the heart of how we address many of these issues. But are people really willing to listen? Are they willing to start from that experience of caring about the needs of the person in front of them rather than their own agendas? That's the issue, I think. Absolutely. And um, that's why the work that I do, Carla, about voice making sure the voice and the insight and the human wisdom of people who've gone through the system is part of the discussion. 
Because right now in communities, in society and government, we only talk about prison, criminal justice reform from the perspective of the people who haven't lived it. And until the people who've lived it are integrated into those discussions and at the forefront of their discussions, we will only keep replicating what we always mm-hmm. replicated the knowledge that we've always had and it'll always end up the same way won't it like if you only do what you always did you'll only get what you always got mm. so how do you think we're going to move the discussion forward without an injection of new perspectives fresh perspectives different perspectives sometimes challenging perspectives right and we but we'd rather keep the blindfold on and keep pretending to ourselves that the prison system's working when you've got 48% reoffending rates mm-hmm. you know people then go no it's tougher sentences we need tougher sentences but why do we think that harsher punishment will work where's the evidence for that is it proportionate you know is it humane and going back to that point about lived experiences and stories, I wondered if maybe we could break through those numbers a bit and talk about what the impact of COVID has been on prisoners. Like, what is it like at the moment to be a prisoner? Dreadful, because people at the moment are in their cells 23 hours and 30 minutes a day um, in the vast majority of prisons. You know, we've all gone been through lockdown and we know it's difficult isn't it to be within your in your house and but the police aren't coming to lock your front door at night they're not locking you in and you're certainly not being locked into your bathroom where most cells are the size of a normal bathroom and there's a toilet in there and a bed and sometimes a double a bunk bed and you're with somebody else you imagine the pressure of that the world health organization talks about extended periods of solitary confinement over, I think it's over 15 days, are considered torture. Prisoners have been in their cells now um, since March. Um, We've had suspension of family visits, so children haven't seen their mums and dads in prison. Families haven't been connected since March. And phone calls are limited to maybe five minutes a day because less than half of the prisons in this country have phones in the cells. Um, and prisoners pay for those phone calls. Uh, but some prisons, you have to queue up on the landing. We've all seen pictures of that mm-hmm. in films. Um, and if you're only out the cell for a limited time, you might not get to the top of the queue in that limited time to make a call. So really disrupted and fragmented conversations with prisoners' families at the moment, which is putting a lot of stress on prisoners' families as well as the prisoners. And I think it's, you know, it's easy for us to go, well, these people are murderers and, you know, they're violent criminals, they're they're paedophiles. But actually, like you say, when you really dig into the figures, like we were saying before, about 83% of the women have committed nonviolent crimes. There's just a lot of really yeah. hurt people walking around in prisons, right? Absolutely. And there's only under 100 people in prison. Of that 88,000 people in prison at the moment, there's only a, a 100 that have what's called whole life tariffs. That means they will never be released. 100? Is that it? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And and the rest are coming home. Like they're coming home at some point. Like I came home to be the neighbour to somebody, to be the work colleague to somebody to sit on the bus, sit on the tube, you know, meet you in a pub when we could have gone to pubs. But, you know, like, we come home. And wouldn't you rather that we came home 
healed? Or would you rather we came home damaged and angry and not had access to the support that we needed to resolve the challenges that we came into prison with? You know, wouldn't people have rather that I got treatment in prison for drug addiction? Wouldn't people rather I got counselling for the mess that my relationship was in? Wouldn't people have rather that happened? Did you not get any of those things? No. <laughs> that's shocking to me. I think that shows my own naivety. I would I would just presume that that was obviously part and parcel of it, but obviously but it's not. That's not strictly true. I did access some support around drugs, but in terms of counselling, you know, therapeutic interventions, they're very few and far between. You know, the majority of people in prison are warehoused. They're just stuck lying on their beds. And like, is that really what we want? Because I know I really want people to get help. I want people to go, okay, I've come to prison, but you know what? I'm going to actually sort my stuff out here. Mm. And I want them to be at, that those services to be there and that support to be there. But sadly, there's such pressure on the system at the moment and such under-resourcing and such public apathy about prisons. I mean, every single political party uses the prison system mm. um, in election campaigns, don't they? You know, we're going to get tougher. We're going to give them longer sentences. Nobody wants to spend money on prisons. Mm. Mm. You know, and prisons don't have a vote and people think they deserve it. But what people don't realise is actually we're hurting our own selves by doing it that way mm. because people are coming home. Yeah. They're coming home to live near you. Wow. And... You know, is there anything, obviously you have been working with an organisation that's doing incredible work. Is there anything to be positive about? Are things changing in any way for the better? Well, yes and no. I mean, what what I take heart from is the work that I have been doing since for the last 12 years, right? With colleagues across the country, people with convictions who've decided to come together, to work together, to create a different narrative, and inject that different narrative into the public discourse and the policy discourse. I take heart from that, that there are champions of people who've lived it, who are prepared, who've survived it. Just as we have survivors of domestic abuse who are involved in changing the way we see domestic violence, you know, how people with drug addiction have come out to say that they're, they have been addicts and changed our perception and understanding of addiction. I think that activation of lived experience for social purpose we are seeing more and more people with convictions in the sector who are challenging who are contributing who are demonstrating that people can change we're seeing just recently in 12 years ago when I started this work you know it was me or you know the guy that I worked with I just want to name him Mark Johnson the CEO of user voice because Mark and I work together when people first said we were going to build prison councils and user involvement and user voice in the criminal justice system people actually laughed at us and said you will never get that off the ground and 12 years later you know I'm a senior management team member at the prison reform trust but it's not just me there's like people behind me and with me um, we have lived experience leads within the prison service we have um, real drive to include people with more lived ex with lived experience into the delivery of service they you know you see people in the national liaison and diversion services with criminal convictions working alongside health professionals led by nhs england health and justice and and so we've got this growing acceptance that to create a different solution 
we need a different and more diverse team with multiple perspectives within it. High-performing teams are teams with multiple perspectives. And without the voice of the people who've lived it, how can we build a different solution? So I think in terms of where I sit with that, I can take pride in that and think, yeah, I've contributed to that through my courage in speaking out and through my courage to be vulnerable about what's happened to me and what I've learned from it and translate that into leadership of a of a different approach I can feel proud about and I, and I can feel that that's progress yeah and on the other hand I think there's so much work to be done about challenging politicians about using prisons in their campaigns without taking time out to understand how people got there what are we doing with imprisonment in this country? It just sits in the backdrop of our psyche without challenge. Why don't we explore different ways? Where are the different types of evidence um, that lead us into designing different types of approaches that might create greater healing mm. and less division in our country? Why don't we look to the social, political and economic inequalities that are actually at the root of imprisonment and the pathways to imprisonment? Why don't we recognise that prison is a place where we generally send people who have been living in the margins, disconnected from the mainstream, disconnected from opportunity and um, subject to oppression and discrimination? When are we going to look at that? Mm. And you mentioned about Mark. Are there any other women addressing these kind of issues that we should follow and support? Big shout out to Michaela Booth, who is the patient and public involvement lead at KUK. Follow her on Twitter. She writes fabulous blogs about that. Big shout out to Baljit Sandhu. She's the chief equity officer of the Centre for Knowledge Equity and home of the lived experience movement, an intersectional network of lived experience leaders um, who are working in criminal justice, in mental health, in uh, disability, in uh, racial justice, gender justice. Big shout out to Baljit because Baljit has instigated an intersectional network where we understand that issues of prison reform are not going to be solved just by siloing them Mm -hmm. out of all the intersectional um, injustices that occur as part of the system in which we live. And Banding together lived experience leaders around commonality of cause is one way forward in challenging and disrupting systems. Oh, that is such a big idea. I love that so much. And is that happening? Yeah. I am chair of the Solidarity Alliance of the um, Lex Movement and part of the Lex Elders Network and uh, work very closely with Baljit. So big shout out to Baljit and the Lex Movement. And, you know, we take heart from, if you look at the theories of social change, they're all about movement building. You know, gay rights were not won by straight people for gay people. Mm. People were brave. They came out. People braved themselves to face the stigma, the shame the and the ostracising And same with people with lived experience of the criminal justice system. You know, it's such a deep shame and stigma. It's painful 
to to talk about and you bring yourself in contact with judgment mm. all the time. You know, I get some really nasty stuff on my Twitter. You know, I went on Loose Women one time and was trolled in some appalling ways, yeah? But combating that level of judgment means we need to stand strong and we need to speak out because we cannot be invisible. And if I go back to the beginning of the podcast, when I talked to you at the beginning of my whole journey through this, was struggling around this fragmentation of self. It was about one face to the public and behind the door, the mess and the chaos and the volatility of the life that I was leading. I realized that you can't live like that. Mm. You can't live in a, in separate identities. The complexity of our lives needs to be synthesized into the strength of who we are and synthesized in the sophistication of our identities. Mm. And when you can master that, when you can actually face yourself, and I have faced myself, I faced myself deeply in the deepest parts of myself and I still work on that in the integration of who I am but when we can integrate every single the the nice the nasty you know the superficial the deep but when we can bring it all together with strength and depth and commitment to go deeper and to strive forward mm. I think that's how we change the world mm. I'm reminded of a piece of work that my husband did he's a contemporary portrait artist and he worked with St Mungo's on a portrait exhibition where okay. they commissioned some artists to do portraits of homeless people which again it sounds like a huge label you know I don't want to reduce someone yeah. homeless person and there was an audio set and you go around and you listen to the audio set of the stories and it was you know this guy used to work for NASA and then he had a car crash and it offense you know he couldn't work anymore and then he had you know he got divorced and it always really stays with me and I, and I feel this that all of us have the ability and god knows covid is showing you know showing us how close we all are to mm. you know the edge essentially like we only need a couple of things to happen to us to fall down you know maybe paths that we didn't expect and i think we need to hear those stories and see those paths as well not just the statistics unfortunately that's how a lot of hum human beings work it's like if you feel like something could happen to you and i guess that's your point about prisoners are going back into society you know this is something that you need to care about this is something that affects you it's not just others yeah and you need to be prepared to pay for it you know if we need to be not going oh my goodness we don't want to spend money on the prison budget we need to say you know what this is really important work mm. it's a really important work and we should be prepared to acknowledge that and look behind inside the walls to see what's really going on and not turn a blind eye to it mm. as if the people behind the wall don't matter. Yeah. And that, as you were saying about connecting lots of different lived experience to show that everything is connected and actually it's not just about prison in a bubble. No. And I've really understood that with the Lex movement and being a driving force behind that with Baljeet, you know, that's really important work for me now. Uh, building networks, building the prisoner policy network was about connecting with other networks for change and connecting with other change makers. Mm -hmm. Because I really believe it's collectives that will change things, you know, not charismatic leaders. I think charismatic leaders is a bit of a fallacy in a way, you know, like it's the act of leadership, you know, being a warrior woman is to recognize that 
you can't be a general without an army mm. that's that's pathetic yeah. and uh, and actually the humility of leadership is to recognize you need to build the collectives around us and need to put our energy into supporting other people to lead mm. with us um because the type of communities we want to live in are ones where we are there's equity where there's equality where there's inclusion where there's deep mutual and respect for people and that doesn't mean that we need to replicate the hierarchical structures of the society that has in some way created the challenges that we're constantly resisting. So we need to lead and live the type of world we want to live in. Thank you so much for joining us today. That was such a, a movingly honest and action-focused conversation, which is a definite tick for for the brief of being a warrior woman so thank you and um we'll definitely look forward to following your work a final question is there anything that we the listeners can do about you know helping to support you or or the change of the movements that you're working on i think there's there's a couple of things that i always think people should do is a own it if you haven't ever challenged anything that you've thought about prisons please do some research please look on the Prison Reform Trust website, start reading up about the facts and then challenge people in your workplace when they do those throwaway comments about prisoners. Be the person who challenges, be the person who says, hang on a minute, I'm not sure that's right to use that language. I'm not sure that's right to use that sort of like those throwaway remarks about prisoners. And so do that, master that in your own self. That's the biggest thing people can do. And then seek out organisations, you know, contact me at the Prison Reform Trust. And like, if you've got a specific interest, I can definitely link you up with all the multiple organisations that are in this space. Follow me on Twitter, send me a message, you know, email me, paula at prisonreformtrust.org.uk. I'm genuinely receptive and always try to get back to people. So thank you so much. And thank you for having me. I'm Carla Morales-Lee. And you've been listening to the Warrior Women podcast, which was produced by the amazing women at Birdline Media. I really hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Make sure you subscribe, because in our next episode, I'll be speaking to Indra Adnan, a political entrepreneur who is asking the question, if politics is broken, what's the alternative? Through the platform The Alternative UK, she's working to transform our political system by bringing more humanity to it. This is our first series. So if you enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate you rating, reviewing, subscribing and sharing it. The Warrior Women Network is a global network of pioneering intersectional women. The best companies in the world are transforming the way they work to be better for people and planet. We offer ways for organisations to learn how to be a force for change from the women already leading it. If you'd like to know more, go to warriorwomennetwork.com for more information. Thank you so much for listening.